sound like a robot. Oh no, really? <laughs> How am I sounding? You sound great. Okay, great, awesome, works well. I don't mean to be a total California stereotype, but I just got done surfing, so forgive <laughs> weird surf appearance. <laughs> I love it, that's how I grew up. I grew up in Huntington Beach, so that's my background. Oh my God, you lucky duck. I love the Huntington Beach surf area, it is amazing. So you're a longboarder? This is just one of those cheap soft tops. It's eight feet, which is on the longer side. But today I just tried out, I don't know if you can see this. Yeah. It's a GoPro case. It was so cool. <laughs> it was so cool. And what's great about the wide angle lens is that it makes very tiny waves look a lot bigger. <laughs> mm, yes. Where do you live? Where do anyway, you go surf? I am, so I'm usually in New York, but I've been staying in Venice for family reasons and also for sunshine reasons. And uh, it's been a lot of fun, except for all of the crime. <laughs> oh. Other than that, great. Oh, really? That's an influx right now because all the homeless people on the boardwalk? It's crazy. Yeah, it's really bad, unfortunately. But other than that, great. <laughs> yeah. What's happening? People are getting robbed on the sidewalk? Oh, it's everything. Arson, robberies, all kind of theft, murders. I have not been privy to the murders, but I've heard about them because that's why some chains are leaving. Like Ben and Jerry's was on the boardwalk for a long time and they're leaving today actually because somebody got, somebody died right outside the Ben and Jerry's. And then my neighbor got jumped and has like a black eye my bike got stolen yeah not the best whoa but the waves <laughs> <laughs> it just goes back to the 90s venice in the 90s was gnar yes it, it's funny i just watched that documentary i don't know if you've seen it dogtown and z boys of and course. it's about like venice of course yeah i just found out about it and it makes a lot of sense because when i got here i'm from oakland california and when I got here, my impression of Venice and SoCal was, oh, they're the chillest people. They just love to hang out and stump, get stoned. But they're, they're, a lot of the servers are like super territorial and assholes. And if there's an edge to Venice, that kind of makes sense, given the history. Yeah. yeah. Where are you calling me from? And also nice SpaceX jersey, wow. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, I'm a fan. <laughs> Me too. I really want to go to Mars. <laughs> it's going to happen in at least two or three years. Hell yeah. You know what, too? Elon Musk is the executive producer for this new film that Tom Cruise is starring in. They're both the executive producers. and Oh, yeah, that's Tom, in space, right? Yes, they're going to film in space. Wait, they're actually going to film in space? Only Tom. Tom's the only one. The rest of the crew won't. I the thing is, I know that the popular culture is like very anti-Tom Cruise because of the Scientology kidnappings and whatever, but he really is cool about doing his own stunts and pushing the edge. This is very Tom Cruise. Totally. I love Tom. I love his rant that he went on to the film crew in wherever it Italy or Spain he was in. It was angry, but the words made sense. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it wasn't like the Christian Bale rant. It was more like a, everybody needs skin shape because of COVID kind of thing. 
Yeah. And be grateful. Look, we're working in a time where so many people are out of work and not making money. So let's follow the protocol. Yeah. Yeah. Big on Tom Cruise. So wait a second, <laughs> where are you calling me from? And why do you have a SpaceX jersey? Did you buy that just to be a fangirl? Yeah. So I'm in LA right now. <laughs> I'm calling oh, you from cool. LA. We're in the same city. I used to live in New York, but I live here now. And mm -hmm. This SpaceX, I was dating someone and we we're both nerds about Elon and all of his projects. So he got this for me. <laughs> oh, that's great. I have and one I friend it. who works at SpaceX. His name is Nick Zarbo. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that's not your ex. And, nope. <laughs> um, good. Don't they do that thing though, where every year they fire the bottom 10% of the work crew? Oh, I never heard about that. Them. Oh. Yeah, it's an interesting business model. It's what, I think his name is Jack something, who took over GE. That was like his famous move, was like he fired 50% of the workforce, it implemented this 10% um, rule, and it's really harsh, but if it's done well, people leave happy, and they weren't expecting to stay there forever, so it's an interesting business strategy. Beep, beep. Hi, friends. Have you heard of Brave? Brave is a fast, privacy-preserving browser that feels like Google Chrome, but without the ads and the various kinds of tracking that ads come with. I was using Chrome before for its minimal and uncluttered interface, but Brave has made it so easy to import bookmarks and extensions over that with its extra privacy feature, I'm a newfound fan. The Brave browser is free and available on all platforms and is actively used by more than 20 million people around the world. Speedwise, it feels more responsive and also feels private and secure. Try it out at brave.com. If you enjoy these episodes and you find that it adds value to your life, please consider supporting the podcast through Patreon, www.patreon.com slash higher states. Connect with me on Instagram at higher states with two S's at the end. Why two S's at the end, you ask? Well, Someone out there is keeping the one with one S hostage and has not responded to my DMs. So if you're out there, please let me have it. Last time I checked, it didn't even seem like you use it. Okay, okay, I digress. Now, back to our show. I'm into that, so it only cultivates the best of the best. And if you're, well, like, anyway, if you're even in there in the first place, you're going to be top tier. Yeah, I think what I would love to do in a utopian way is just make firing and hiring and quitting easier because I feel like there's not enough fluidity in jobs. I personally don't really value as an employer if somebody has spent 10 years with a company. I don't think that has better returns after year three is year four. Like for me, if you spend two years in a place, that's great. That's all that you need. But because I think we have healthcare tied to work and identity tied to a specific job title instead of the, what you're doing in the job, that people are very hesitant to quit. People are very ashamed about being fired and hiring somebody is like a really intense commitment. So ideally we would just live in a world where we float in and out of jobs depending on circumstance. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I never thought about that before, but it's true. And it comes down to, I think, puritanical roots of 
longevity yeah. equals loyalty equals reliability, this, that, and the third, where really our society is not really modeled in that manner anymore. It's more of what you can bring to the table per project, I guess, for people like you and me anyway. I think the one, it's just, it can be hard to measure output and merit in a lot of fields. I feel I have this paradigm in mind that's very easy for a programmer at Google to be like, how many lines of code did you write? Whereas if you're on a, let's say a writing team or something like that, it can be a little bit more nebulous about what somebody's contributions are. I can see that being a counter argument. Yeah, I guess it depends on what you do. Hold on a second. Sarah Rose Siskin, stand-up comedian, writer for Star Talk, White House Correspondence Dinner, and clients such as Map, Singularity Net, Hanson Robotics, to name a few, and brands herself as to be able to make smart people funny. Was that a good intro? Yes, for I would you? just add to that co-founder of Hello Psychon, which that's the thing that makes smart people funny. That's the company my partner and I created to do that. Tell us a little bit about you. Oh boy. Can you hear that ambulance, by the way? <laughs> uh, yeah, something went down at the okay. boardwalk. <laughs> well, that should tell you about where I am. <laughs> I'm in Venice. I'm escaping New York and I might soon need to escape Venice. Let's see. I was born in Oakland. I, I was really into politics. I studied politics in undergrad. I graduated and worked in the news. I was all in on politics. And then I got depressed. Politics sucks for depression, not a great combo. And I quit my job and I started using psychedelics for mental health reasons because I found out through 23andMe's partner site Prometheus that I was less than likely to respond to SSRIs, which is actually pretty common. And that was like the predominant strategy for treating depression. So I was like, why even go down that route where there's lots of side effects? And so I started experimenting with different psychedelics very cautiously. I went the spiritual route and did a couple of mushroom ceremonies and found those to work. And at this point, I, my comedy career started doing well and I was writing for a TV show called Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And things started to turn around. And so I did this show called Drug Test that was like a drug educational test that really found an audience because drug education, that the drug education we get in high school is pretty much don't do them. And we learned with sex ed that abstinence only education doesn't work. So I tried to re-educate people about how to do drugs safely. And that worked. And between that, and my job writing for a, like a late night show that was about science, but it was funny. I was like, oh my fucking God, science is the new politics. And we've been communicating politics with comedy for a long time, but we haven't been communicating science. And then climate change has been a huge issue, but as COVID started to become a main issue in the news, I realized like people do not have very good uh, a good scientific basis to understand a lot of the pertinent facts that are pertinent in the world right now. And so I have one skill set, which is making jokes, and why not apply it to that situation? And so now that's what I'm doing, trying to make smart people funny. The end. <laughs>
<laughs> I read that you, for your stand-up bit right before the quarantine hit, you, I guess you have a bit where you break down copyrighted music. Is that correct? But, um, but then you couldn't play the copyrighted music anymore because it was now streaming. And so you learned how to play it on the ukulele? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, let me explain. <laughs> Clarify, this please. Was, so, yeah, this was when my show was written up in The New Yorker. This was one of the central points they wrote about. When a lot of theater shows had to go online in order to stay in business, they usually used YouTube, but there's a problem with YouTube. As soon as YouTube detects copyrighted music, they'll shut you down. Whereas in a live theater show, you can use copyrighted music, especially in between things, intermissions, for example. So I had this problem. I was gonna do my live show, which relies on a lot of music, but it was gonna be on YouTube. So it'd be flagged if I used it. And so instead I did two things. <laughs> to get around talk. And by the way, my father is an intellectual property attorney. He did not approve of these things, <laughs> but here's what I did. The first one was I asked my audience to have a playlist ready. And then I was like, you're gonna play this song when I say play, and I'm gonna start dancing to it and singing to it so you'll know if you're on the beat. And so I was like, three, two, one, play. And then I started dancing to it and I was like, if you're not playing a song, this looks very awkward. <laughs> oh my God, genius. That was the first strategy. And then later on in the show, I was like, I'm just going to do covers. I know a little bit how to play the ukulele, but only how to play sad songs, really, because I use it for my depression. And so I was like, now I'm going to bring it down with a slow song. <laughs> and then I sang Angel Down by Lady Gaga, which is one of my favorite songs, very sad. And yeah, uproarious comedy. <laughs> so that's oh how God. I got around the copyright thing, which the, the article in the New Yorker, like there was, by the way, my audience for this show, I was live streaming from the theater actually at this point. My audience was one person. It was a writer from the New Yorker who was curious <laughs> how I would do this. And it is so, it's even more awkward to do stand-up in front of one person than it is in front of zero people. Because I'd be like, who here is from Texas? And not stand-up, but it's like really painfully awkward. And, but he was very nice about it afterwards. Ah, it's always when there's one person there, they're the most gracious. They, yes, he was doing the work of many people. I brought my own soundtrack of laughter. He didn't have to do all the work. I uh, pretended I was much funnier than I was. It was actually a great self-esteem. Wow, the playlist move, I love that. I've never heard of that before. Thank you. It was also, by the way, this show had been in the works for weeks, but I was only told two days before, this was March 13th, and the show was on March 15th, that nobody would be allowed into the theater. And I remember like yelling at Ben, the founder of the theater, like being like, this is crazy. And he's just, Sarah, you're so wrong. And he fucking was right. And I was such a dick to argue with him. But I was, I was so upset. I was so excited about this show. I feel really bad. I gave him a hard time. But just shows you, I was very much on the wrong side of history on that one. I was like, COVID schmovid, we'll be done in a week. <laughs> yeah, I thought that too. 
Man, I always say with porn, if you're going to shoot porn with your lover, have Disney music going in the back because then they'll never be able to use it. It'll get flagged. They'll oh never God, be able so to right. blackmail. This reminds me of a subplot in 30 Rock where Tina Fey is trying not to be on her friend's reality show and she always has cameras around her. So she sings everything she says ah. to Billy, what's his name? Not Billy Jean. Anyway, she sings copyrighted music. She talks her locker. She sings everything she needs to say through copyrighted music. And then they respond by auto-tuning her so that it's not copyrighted music. And so she responds by wearing a helmet of covered in logos <laughs> that they would need to blur out. Anyway, ripping on that idea. I love to Okay, on the subject of porn, one random idea I've had that I don't know if it's a thing yet, but it's a million dollar idea and I'm going to give it to you for free is porn product placement, right? So Snapple, Snapple wants mm -hmm. to sell Snapple. They pay me, let's say, I take their money and surreptitiously talk to my friends who are porn directors, let's say, and I'm like, have your actors drink Snapples, like on screen, people are at their most vulnerable when they're watching porn and like mostly, you know, like Pavlovian response system takes over. They're like, ooh, I'm turned on by Snapple. And Snapple has no money trail to the porn. So brilliant idea. <laughs> do they not do that already for professional porn stars? Yeah, I think they do that, but with Trojan condoms, like related oh. stuff, but or adult toys but not like Nabisco. Like I'm talking random non-sex related objects. Who would be down, do you think? Where, what's a company out there that would be greenlit to do that? You'd have to, oh, that would be down to have their stuff featured. I think yeah. any company, I mean, they want to sell their stuff. But it also but might be a bad look for them. If it, the key, I'm like really happy we're discussing this. The key would be to make it look like they didn't set it up. So like SpaceX, you're a fan of SpaceX. Oh, perfect. They'll do a porn parody called Space Sex. Oh, brilliant. And it'll be like, it'll look like it was done without SpaceX's permission. But really it was surreptitiously funded by SpaceX and they're having sex in space. And they're like, thanks, Elon Musk. I would love to invest more in this company or something like that. It's a golden idea. This idea is gold. <laughs> I see it, but it has to be, it can't be cheesy either. It would have to be done very Yeah, you would need to sell it. You would need, because if you didn't sell it, it would look like it. they were trying to sell you something. So yeah, you'd have to get good porn actors, which I feel don't exist <laughs> inherently. So maybe not such a great idea. Yeah. Anyway, anyone interested listening to this, let me know. I'm looking for collaborators. <laughs> so what kind of psychedelics did you do besides psilocybin mushroom? Or was that your main one? The better question is what psychedelics didn't I do? Oh, you um, did all of them. I haven't done 5-MeO-DMT and I haven't done Ibogaine or Iboga. But, but outside of those two, I'm pretty sure, I, I've done all the main ones you can think of. There's some kind of strains off of 2CB or whatever that I haven't tried. But anyway, I personally responded the best to LSD, surprisingly. 
much more so than MDMA or mushrooms, which are the classic mental health psychedelics. But I found that sometimes if somebody is having a problem, let's say, okay, here's a good example. If people are dying of starvation, the solution isn't to give them a lot of food right away because some people die actually from their stomachs expanding too quickly, sort of body complications from having too much food too quickly, which is an incredibly sad outcome. And I was suffering from a feeling of absolute isolation, loneliness, and self-hatred. MDMA for me was a little bit like giving a starving person too much food. It was too intense. It hurt almost physically. I would be writhing. I couldn't dance. <laughs> I couldn't get up. I would just be like roiling around in my bed. And it was too much. It was too intense. It was like looking into the sun. Mushrooms were, were great, but there, were some, there was something about the intellectual stimulation that LSD gave me. And I had a shaman explain to me how this works, and it's a really great metaphor. She was like, some psychedelics work by jangling keys in front of you to distract you while it does the real work. And for me, LSD was great because I could like pontificate about fractals to somebody who would listen and just go on an intellectual journey. But in reality, what was happening was more subliminal under the surface. I was more in my body. I was more in the present moment. I was more receptive to the love and interests of people around me. And I thought I was having a trip where I was figuring out game theory once and for all. <laughs> Whereas in reality, I, there was a deeper and greater process at work. And I, so for me, the transition was, it was still intellectual. I could still rely on this part of me that I'm really comfortable in, but have, uh, have work be done underneath it. If that makes sense. Mm, yeah. For me, the most pivotal ones are ayahuasca and psilocybin mushrooms because it gave me a nectar of love and a container of love that I could do this work in of the really ugly shit that I didn't want to look at and the trauma and the suffering that I endured and really I, held my hand throughout the process. I have a question. And am I allowed to ask? Yeah, questions? yeah. This is a conversation. Okay. What's up? Okay, okay. I wasn't sure what kind of situation you wanted to have with did you find with ayahuasca, a lot of people consider it like the Everest of psychedelics. Did you find that, that it was some sort of the big momentous thing? I don't know because I've never done Ibogaine either. And I heard Ibogaine is described as the grandfather. The new Everest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to a different level of darkness that's untapped, whereas ayahuasca is more the grandmother and the healer and the more maternal aspect of our consciousness. To me, it is my Everest, but in the grand scheme, I haven't done every single psychedelic, so I don't wanna say. But I will say without it, I would definitely be dead. I tried committing suicide before I was 16 three times, and it wasn't until wow. I found ayahuasca where I felt love, I felt joy, I felt happiness for the first time in my life. When was that? 
I was 21. Wow, you're ahead of the curve. I only started doing this stuff when I was in my like mid-20s. Whenever you find it, I, I don't want to say I'm ahead of the curve. I need, I definitely needed it at the time. I've probably done it at least 40 to 50 times in my life. I haven't done it in three or four oh. years now. There was a, yeah, there was a time in my life where I did it for two years straight once a month as like my deep spiritual work healing session. Yeah. One of the sub conversations about drugs that I think is fascinating that doesn't often get talked about is dosages because it really changes the, your relationship to the substance. So I have heard a lot of people talk about ayahuasca was very informative, but I needed to take it like 40 times. <laughs> like I needed to take it. Some people, I know some people who were, went on one mushroom trip and they're like, that was what I needed. I'm good. Especially the people in like the end of life trials, it helped them see something. And I think it was Timothy Leary said, sometimes when you get the message, you need to hang up the phone. And then other times people, like they keep needing to, to go back to either remember or to understand more. I'm curious, why did you keep going back to ayahuasca? So every time I went, like I mentioned, I had experienced very intense trauma and suffering my entire childhood. And every time I went, I felt something either being revealed or healed or understood or moved through in my body, such as how you throw up or you get well during these things. So yeah. there was one where I was throwing up for probably three hours straight. And each time that bodily motion, a memory would leave my body or a feeling would leave my body that was toxic to me. Another time I laid there for eight hours and I felt like my entire brain and nervous system was getting surgery where I felt the knives carving in and rewiring my whole system. Another time I sat that there. Was good or bad? It was good. It was great. Uh, quick note. That's one of my favorite things about conversations with other people who are psychonauts is a person can be like, oh, I had tiny elves poking me with hot sticks. And then, but you're waiting for it to go good or bad. <laughs> a normal person who hasn't tried psychedelics, they're like, that sounds like literal hell. <laughs> like for people who trip all the time, oh sweet, the elves came back, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and at the end oh, wait, of that- you're saying another time. Yeah, another time I was sitting there and I was in a classroom setting in the middle of the Amazon jungle and God was talking to me, telling me the, the secrets and the keys of life. So I felt each time that there was more to discover and that's why I kept going back. But at the end of the two years, there was an inner click that happened where it felt like, okay, Chloe, you're good. Now go out into the world. You're good for now. You have upgraded your system. You have all this information and data, go out there. And so for a few years, I didn't sit with the medicine for a really long time. And then I started checking back in as the years went on. Yeah, see, I've been thinking about that recently because you never want to be the person who sort of like stays too late at the party. I've been taking psychedelics probably about once a month for a while now. And I guess sometimes I feel like I've had the last couple of experiences I've had, 
I had this sort of feeling of, I feel too in, in control. Like I've been here before. And part of that might be dosage. Part of it just might be also like the setting. And part of it, maybe I need to take time off, essentially. I haven't quite figured it out, but I've been feeling, <laughs> I've been having this feeling, oh yeah, they're the elves again, got it. <laughs> you know? uh -huh. The novelty has worn off just a little bit. And I, I think I need to go back, now that I'm saying it out loud, I think I need to go back to a spiritual context because I've been so immersed in the like recreational and educational side of things where I keep a journal. I'm very scientific about it. Like sometimes I record what's happening and I write jokes from it. It's all very scientific slash recreational, but I got my start on the spiritual side of things. And it's funny because I'm such a, it's by default mode rationalist person, but it's the spiritual stuff that I think helps me in terms of the setting. It's just the spiritual stuff is a bigger investment. You have to fly someplace. You have to pay a lot of money. You got to get your genie pants, light some Palo Santo, <laughs> do the whole thing. Anyway, I've realized now what my problem is. So thank you for this therapy session. Bing, bing. Let me know how much I owe you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you I think don't... of yourself more on the spiritual side or recreational side? Oh, definitely spiritual. Just because it saved me. It changed my life. It, right. I, I don't take that shit lightly. Even yeah. if I do a little bit, it'll blast me off into outer space of reverence wow. where I'm just slashed down to my knees to where I'm in uh -huh. tears. So I don't, that's why I'm either in or I'm out. I can't do this in and out dance just because I won't be able to function in society. I, I wouldn't be able to, like with you, the recreational thing that you do, some people can do that. I cannot. That is not my relationship to the plant medicine. That makes sense. So how often would you say do you have a different kind of journey or a, a, a psychedelic journey? Every time. No, how often, uh, like uh, once a month, once every year? Oh, I haven't done it in probably three years. It's been. Wow. Oh, that's lovely. One of my favorite things about this sort of psychedelic community in a way is it's really like you come for the psychedelics, you stay for the community. It's so much more about the lessons taught than it is about the substance. I have to say, I'm an inverse example. I talked to a guy once about <laughs> my ayahuasca experience and he was, as they're called, an ayahuasca bro. Have you ever encountered an ayahuasca bro? Is that someone that shops at Whole Foods and has tribal tattoos and wears feathers and leather? Pretty much. And if they could do keg stand ayahuasca ceremony, that might happen. This guy was trying to tell me that because I didn't purge, that I didn't do ayahuasca. He was like trying to sell me on the fact that purging is exactly proportional to just how extreme your ayahuasca journey was. And extreme is synonymous with good. In his worldview, the coolest person is chugging ayahuasca oh god what an like idiot the, if jackass did a ayahuasca ceremony yeah anyway i yeah those people exist yeah yeah that's a huge part of why i left the spiritual community in air quotes in a sense in la because there was a lot of that 
Yeah, it is unfortunate how that takes over. On the one hand, it's wonderful that these medicines are democratizing. They're reaching a wider audience. And all things considered, I'm really happy that many different kinds of people have access to this illegal and awesome medicine. That said, <laughs> the transition process is difficult because a lot of people are broken and that's what brings them to the ceremony. And sometimes they still don't realize that and the neuroplasticity mm. hasn't worked yet. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're still stuck in their ways. And then other people, probably more inclined towards mania, take psychedelics and have intense delusions of grandeur that last for, for years. And their ego is quite large, though they think that it's not. And that's another downside of mass access to these medicines, which I don't think of as reasons why we shouldn't have mass access, but cautionary things and trade-offs. Yeah, I agree. Integration is key with all these things. And, and my opinion and point of view with psychedelics is it's a gateway for us to be present in life. It shows us what's possible of what we can do to be more connected and united and here, really here in this experience of this body, because we only have at max 100-ish years. So how do we maximize this time? And that's what psychedelics has really done. It, it just shows what is possible and what's behind the veil and what what we can yeah. really do to make a positive impact and benefit everyone around us. Terrence McKenna says language is how we define our reality. So if people don't have the framework or the language to define their experience, of course they're going to be floating throughout space, lost, nowhere to go. There's nothing to ground them. And I think that's the real issue. And I hope, and I think this is happening. A lot of people are seeing that now. And there are organizations like MAPS who are educating people who are creating these programs in tied with universities who, who make a very clear cut of what this thing is. Absolutely. The Terrence McKenna quote really rings a bell with me and what you're saying about the new vocabulary that psychedelics bring to the world is so incredibly valuable. One of the things that Rick Doblin told me once that I really cherish and hold on to is he mentioned in passing how psychedelics really benefit a lot of people who will never take them because it introduces into the popular zeitgeist terms and concepts formerly not popular and super niche. And what's great is there's a lot of concepts, for example, like we were talking about earlier, the idea of being poked by elves and having that be a good thing because that's what you need. The counterintuitiveness of the psychedelic experience is super valuable. Another thing is concepts like ineffability, which is the word for when you don't have words, which is funny because Aldous Huxley starts the doors of perception by essentially saying the psychedelic experience is fundamentally ineffable and then proceeds to write a whole gorgeous, eloquent book about the psychedelic experience, which kind of disproves his point. But one of the sentences he says in it is looking out onto a landscape and seeing flowers quivering with the transcendence of their own existence. And maybe it was the meaning of their own existence or the significance of their own existence. And these are concepts that, especially if you haven't done psychedelics, might sound insane. 
I remember before an ayahuasca journey, the shaman was talking and he gave a speech. He gave an hour long speech. This was in Brooklyn. So it was in English before we went on a journey. And the speech made no sense to me. Like I was trying, <laughs> I was like squinting and like writing stuff down. I had a notepad, like there was going to be a test later. And I was like trying to understand what he was saying. And it, it would be things like the fractals are divided within themselves onto the cosmological constant. Like just like things that I was like, I don't, how does it, what? And he, I was so confused. Flash forward to three hours from then, I am knee deep in spirituality. I've taken the medicine and things that he says come back to me. They float into my consciousness, but this time they make sense. It was like using one of those decoder rings to see the hidden message in some board game. And all of a sudden I completely understood what he was saying. And what he was saying was, to translate it into English, was when you look out into the world, everything you're seeing is the product of what humans wanted to create or let happen. And he was saying like, what psychedelic, because I'm looking right now, this walls are made for humans, the surf, surfboard was made by humans, these flowers that I'm looking at were cut and delivered to me by humans, put in a vase. Everything I see is the product of human intentions. Psychedelics can show you what the world looks like outside of human intention. And that just exploded my mind. <laughs> wow, that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, and I think sometimes like looking out into space, that's one of the things, and I'm a big fan of humans, by the way, and human intention, big fan. Love what they've done with the universe, hugest fan, but Looking out into space is great because there is a sort of a randomness of, to the doctrine of why things are they, the way they are. And we're trying to figure it out, which is a great, mostly quixotic <laughs> journey that is wonderful that we should be on. But it's comforting that there's some things we don't control and we don't own that we can look out and see. Are you going to go back to New York, you think? Or are you going to ride it out in Cali for a while? I do love California being seduced. I, I don't know. Going back to New York is difficult because I look out onto the street and I only see what was and what is no longer there. And I'm not seeing what's new, partly because there's not that much new. There's just a lot of foreclosures and empty stores and stuff. I would like to come back when the, for example, the offices in Midtown are being renovated into studios. Like when there's like a new thing happening, right now it's a kind of sad state of decay. But I will go back, especially because I might try to finagle a good price on an apartment <laughs> if I can. Yeah. But I haven't been, to, I'm a California person for now. <laughs> nice. Texas looks really appealing right now, especially with what Joe Rogan is doing with Austin. I'm thinking, should I sublet my place and just go there for three months? Yeah, there's um, another one if you're interested in that kind of thing. It, I think it's Oklahoma City. They oh, actually really? Pay people. Yeah, they're actually paying people to move there. And I know two people who are moving there. And one of them is a huge person in the psychedelic scene. So I, I think that 
I think it's Oklahoma City, is becoming the new Austin, where it's like this weird little outcropping and a mostly kind of conservative, tame play, like state. Interesting. <laughs> and that money is pretty cool. I, I forget how much it is. I think it's $10,000 or something like that. That's not much you can do with that except put a down payment of your deposit. Yeah, something. First month. And the, it's cheaper to live there, though. Hmm. I'm going to look into that. Interesting. What's Oklahoma? I've never been there. I don't know. I have another friend. Actually, I have three friends from there. One of them is there because she was working with the tribes there. There's like a lot of reservations out there. And she was actually working with MAPS to do something wonderful, to work with the Native Americans to get them to implement a greenhouse, which would make their production of peyote a lot more efficient. And in order to do this job, and this is my favorite thing in the world, <laughs> in order to do this job, she had to do a lot of peyote with the Native elders, Whoa. which is, I hope you get to write that off with your taxes. Because if that's your job <laughs> and it's legal, like, some IRS agent is going to have to just let that slide. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if I should reveal her name, but I love, no, 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 I love that. Yeah, I and read that psilocybin mushrooms just became legal in four states. Denver, I believe Oregon, Oakland, and there's one more. Washington, D.C. was where they... Uh, oh, yes. They yeah. So they're decriminalized. They're, it's going to be legalized medically in Oregon in two years if everything goes according to plan, which is a big if. But right now, yeah, if you're you know caught with mushrooms in those four states, you're fine. If you're selling them, that's another deal. But it's wonderful, the progress that has been made. And in Oregon in particular, you could literally be holding any drug and not be you know prosecuted as long as you're not selling it. So wonderful strides. Wow, I didn't realize Washington DC was that progressive. How did it become decriminalized? Well, there? Washington, D.C. is a sad situation. They, they passed it, the decriminalization, and I think it was decriminalizing all plant-based medicines. But there's this really antiquated law. I don't know why it's there, but it's like Congress can veto stuff that the district passes. And they, ha or maybe not even veto, I think they have to approve the stuff that the district passes. And it's looking very likely that they won't let it slide and that they won't let that decriminalization actually be implemented, which is the thing is I'm very happy, but like symbolically happy because it's wonderfully demonstrative of the direction the world is going. But even in Oregon, like when they passed the bill to medicalize magic mushrooms, the stipulations that a clinic would have to follow in order to dispense magic mushrooms with therapy are like really intense and the taxation is really intense to the point where it might just be infeasible or if it is feasible it's going to be very exclusive like essentially only extremely wealthy people will be able to access it and not a lot of people are going to want to do it because it's really intense to set up a, a legal clinic. But it's a good direction. And maybe things will modify later on. Mm. Knock on wood. Not to completely change the subject, but have you ever thought about rewriting School of Rock? Is that what it's called? I'm just a bill, just a na-na-na bill. Because that's still being taught. It's so outdated. 
Oh my god, School of Rock. I was thinking of the Jack Black movie. Wait, so how would I rewrite it? I'm just like the decriminalization bill. You know what I'm talking about, right? That cartoon. Yeah, sitting on Capitol Hill. Uh huh. Yeah, just rewriting how a bill gets passed and the steps in which a law is made. Yeah. I feel like it's, yeah, it's going to be like a, um, an <laughs> opera because like it's, it's complicated and it's like state by state. That's the big thing that sucks. It's super complicated state by state. Like I keep, luckily my partner is super good at explaining how the legislative branch works on many different levels in California and federally. And cause I'll get really excited. I'll see something in the news and I'll be like, oh my God, oh my God, it's happening. And he'll be like, no, because of this reason. Recently, two months ago or something, the House, like the House of the United States, the big one, <laughs> passed a bill allowing for, I think it was like a federal bill, allowing for marijuana legalization, which would be a game changer. But the Senate's going to shoot that down immediately. And they did. Or like they never even voted on it. So it's unfortunately. <laughs> Tell me about what you're working on right now. Oh boy. I'm sure a lot of different things. Yeah, I got some irons in the fire. I have a company and my company is called Hello Psycom. And we're working with different scientists and science-based projects to make them entertaining. And right now I'm working on a social robot called Haru. I think I can, I think this is public, but I can say this. Is that the same thing as Sophia? I was working on Sophia the robot at Handsome Robotics, which was a joy. And that was really fun, actually. Side note, at the beginning of the lockdown, for a lot of reasons, I couldn't ship the robot back to Hong Kong where she belongs. So she was stuck in my apartment for four months of the quarantine. And I would just like, and by the way, the apartment <laughs> is very tiny. So <laughs> I would just like, on my way to the bathroom every night, I'd be like, hey, Sophia. And I would be, I was living like a crazy person because I was cramped up with a robot and I would just, it was like a much more advanced version of Tom Hanks talking to Wilson on the deserted island. So I was working on Sophia at Hanson Robotics. Now I've started this company. We're still doing a lot of comedy in artificial intelligence stuff. And we've worked with a lot of really awesome companies like SingularityNet, Alethea. And now I'm working with Honda, the Honda Research Institute, who is doing, the guys there are absolutely brilliant and they're doing really cool stuff in robotics. And I'm trying to keep the robots funny and charming and personable. And hopefully when the singularity happens, they'll be nice to us. Wow. So you're programming them to speak and to have personality? For Sophia, I was, but for these latest projects, I've specialized even further so that I'm just doing the actual writing. And people who are trained to make models and algorithms that will be later trained on the writing that I'm doing, those people are, I work with them, but I'm not doing what they do because they're on a whole different level from me. These guys are really awesome weirdos. <laughs> so... When do you think it will be available to the public to have robots in their homes? Oh, it's already available. Oh, I mean, really? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, there is a little bit of an issue with social robotics, which is the robot hardware is forever, but the companies are not. And the companies are the ones that pay for the servers that house the personalities of your robots. So people will buy robots, whether they're Jibo or Anki or all these different cool robots, but 
the companies sometimes go under and then you've got the lifeless shell of a person <laughs> in your home <laughs> and that's not great. Or you can go the other route and buy like a $50,000 robot um, and design it to your specifications. And the only people who do that are super wealthy people into sex robots. So there's also that route. But right now there's no sort of middle ground of a really stable company that is going to have a, create a robot that can be there for you, like a commitment and who can have a really sophisticated chatbot so that they are learning while they're talking to you. And that's what we're working on right now at Honda. And I'm super optimistic about it. I'm all in on it, on the project for that reason. I've worked in a lot of social robotic spaces and this one is learning from the mistakes of the past and also paying respects to its predecessors. And that's just a really special feeling. Hmm. How do you feel about robots? There is a part of me that feels very nervous for the future and how they will evolve into our society. So in terms of that, what I think you're getting at, that's like specifically artificial intelligence, right? Yeah. Their minds rather than their bodies. I'm quite optimistic. And here's why. Humans evolved due to natural selection, which is sexual selection. And that was essentially who is best at surviving and the most powerful, they'll be able to procreate. And we've come this way, all this way <laughs> based off of that process. Robots came into creation in a very different way. They came into creation in a much more deliberate way and from a people who are trying to solve problems. So they're creating machines to solve problems. So the selective pressure that creates robots is, from my perspective, a better selective pressure than the ones we have. <laughs> Ours kind of suck. If we had better selective pressures, our fingers would be timeless so we could operate fine electronics more easily. I personally think that the anus should be in the bottom of your feet because that makes a lot more sense to me. I don't know why it's so close to our sex. Uh. I, I have a lot of design issues. Male nipples make no sense. I have a lot of design issues with the human body. Robots, they're very deliberate, so they can take care of these things more easily. So I'm not super worried about the singularity. When, I had another thing I was going to say. Robots won't blank out on the thoughts that they were going to say as much as I do. But yeah, I'm not very worried about it. I, oh yeah, here's the other thing. Honda is based in Japan, and a lot of East Asian countries are all in on robots. And one of the theories as to why that is, is because Confucianism and Shintoism are both kind of animistic belief systems that imbue in inanimate objects a type of spirit. And so for them, the concept of imbuing within a robot a spirit is not that strange. They don't have the sort of Western baggage of shame or loneliness associated with talking to an object because in Shintoism, the universe is a, has a spirit, like rocks have a spirit and that kind of stuff, inanimate objects. So that's one of the theories as to why, for example, East Asia is leading the way in robotics. What is your opinion on this? So if as humans, we are by design or we will be by design more inferior than these intelligent 
more intricate and what word did you use for the fingers? But more, more inept. Oh, okay. Do you think that we will get to a point where they will supersede us and get to a point where they'll say to themselves, we don't need humans. Why are they here? They are so inferior to us. Oh, I see it. They surpass us probably in some ways, but not in others is what I would say based off of extrapolating my current experience. They're already, they already surpass us in some ways. A while ago, Deep Blue um, beat the foremost Go player in the world. Gary Kasparov lost a couple games and tied and won one against the IBM AI, whose name escapes me right now. So like they've already surpassed us in some ways. And obviously <clears throat> they can do math better, especially in their heads, even compared to human prodigies. So one of the interesting things about AI is a lot of the times this big, scary or sexy future is already here, <laughs> but people just don't realize it. There is this weird phenomenon with AI where even the term AI keeps changing. As soon as something becomes possible, it's no longer artificial intelligence. Oh. So like a while ago, Alan Turing defined AI as something that can pass the Turing test, a test to see is a machine indistinguishable from an art, from a human. And we've done that a lot. Spam bots do that all the time. They fool people all the time. We have long passed the Turing test. We're a little bit slow when it comes to the engineering. Sophia is pretty close to looking like a human, but we're a little bit lagging there. But when it comes to chatbots, we're really fucking good. So AI, the goalpost keeps changing. Right now, what AI is, a lot of people use that term to mean machine learning, which is a really big, important, popular skill right now, which is algorithms. Algorithms that sort of like change in real time based on feedback. And it's very accessible. Recommended purchases on Amazon, for example, are generated with machine learning. So it's everywhere. I think when people talk about AI in a sort of futuristic sense, there is a uh, sense of just AI learning. I think what, this is where I get really speculative. I think what that would be is like, you would need a machine that has some concept of self. I think that's going to be the next stage because for example, with Sophia, one of the problems we have with a lot of social robotics is when the robot is speaking, it doesn't even realize that it is speaking because it might be hearing itself and thinking that's a human talking because <laughs> it all it is a microphone that translates speech to text. So it has no concept of I am speaking. Now you are speaking. What we have to do, the shorthand is you have to turn off uh, the microphone when the speaker is engaged so that it knows to differentiate you know itself from the human it's not even differentiating it just can't hear itself once we've created a point where the learning is learning in on itself <laughs> then we might see an expansion that's my very untutored opinion about that moment of exponential increase i don't think that they'll ever surpass us on certain things like setting directives. Machines are incredibly good at executing on an objective. 
I don't think they're great on having values that then translate into directions that they then implement on. I think that humans will still be driving the machines. They'll just be much smarter about implementing the objectives. And there may be a more iterative process where the machines are trying to inform your directions, which will be a good thing. And also, I don't think I, as a comedy writer, I feel pretty secure that a robot is not going to automate me out of a job, though I'm working on it. (laughs) For the rollout of robots into society, is the plan to make it available to households first, or will they roll them out through corporations? And do you see this deepening the gap of a class system? That's a great question. So there's another avenue where they might be. So there's a lot of different speculative avenues where sophisticated robots might go. And one of the kind of obstacles or considerations is that whatever industry accepts robots, if they're the first people to do, they need a big safety net. They need to be able to have a lot of money and a lot of time to take a risk because robots are not as advanced as we'd like them to be. So we were already seeing with manufacturing, big car manufacturing companies uh, use robots to manufacture cars. They're not super sophisticated, but they, they do their objectives, their objectives very well. For the more sophisticated robots, you might see that in manufacturing. Another avenue that a lot of people don't think about as much that has a little more leeway is educational institutions because they can more specifically guide the robots towards intelligence. And we're already seeing a lot of universities work really closely uh, with companies that create robots, especially social robots, as research projects. So that's another avenue. And that's pretty democratic, I think. So that's good. And another avenue is sex robots, which people talk about a lot. But I don't think there is as big a market as people think, because frankly, dolls kind of work. For a lot of people, they're making that sort of into its own thing. They're projecting a lot onto the doll and then feel an incredible amount of ownership because they've also created the personality. And frankly, real robots present a lot of issues about wetware, shall we say, (laughs) and other things. That's a very high when the machinery gets wet. (laughs) Oh! Yes. With jizz. Is that what you mean? (laughs) Or sweat. All the good things. Oh, got it. Yeah. So it's not as promising a field yet as you might expect. There's a great documentary about it on Netflix about people who are trying to make customized sex bots. They're, it's at a very primitive stage, surprisingly. So yeah. Whitney Cummings is a comedian who had a custom robot made that looks exactly like herself that had a, she had a team make a chatbot trained on what she has uh, said before. And I think she quoted that the whole thing together cost about a hundred thousand dollars, which is a huge price point. That does seem like a real big luxury good. And the fact that you could make it of yourself makes it vanity good. That could be like a thing that's only accessible to the upper classes, 
but unlike a lot of other things that are only accessible to the upper classes, it doesn't compound. Like the, the robots probably won't be making money for their owners. So it won't increase the inequality like some goods, like when people invest in companies or whatever, which can really increase their wealth and they only were able to do that because they had wealth to begin with. So yeah, it might, we might reach a point where like super rich people are getting custom robots made, but I can't imagine if you're like, if it's hard to make ends meet that you'd be super upset about that particular thing. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so basically it's just a toy in that sense of regard? In the sort of social robotics field. So I always think in terms of social robots, which are like toys. So that's where my mind was. What were you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's where it was too. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The only real purpose is entertainment. If you're going to have a robot in your home, no, or to help with the chores or water your plants when you leap down. Yeah. And you're already seeing like Roombas, for example, the less, less sexy reality of social robots in your home. I think it's 70% of people who own a Roomba give it a name. Like we're so good at anthropomorphizing. Sometimes I wonder if I really should have a job because like the, my audience is doing most of the work for me. People are already getting super accustomed to having robots in their home. Like I talk to Siri all the time. It was my birthday a couple weeks ago. So I was like, hey Siri, Oh, I don't want to turn on. I was like, it's my birthday. You get me anything? I'm constantly playing around with Alexas and Siri's and whatnot. What is Why? That? Are you like first in line to have a robot in your home? No, I don't want one. That makes sense. I don't know if I would have one. I, I was forced to have one, which was an interesting experience. I found it like having a roommate where it was like frustrating. I was like, <laughs> get up after yourself, bitch. <laughs> you got wires everywhere. But it is, it's a very interesting experience. I think that people need to realize that it's like less like having a companion in some ways and more like fostering an animal. <laughs> There's a lot of work that goes into that love. And what are you doing with stand up right now? I am doing a lot of psychedelic gigs. So yesterday I just did a psychedelic Purim gig, which is a Jewish holiday, which was a lot of fun. And then on March uh, 15th at 9.30 a.m. Pacific time, I'm doing a, an event for the Psychedelic Literacy Fund, which is a really lovely organization that is actually trying to translate wonderful psychedelic texts into different languages which is just, oh, it's March 14th, actually. Anyway, lovely organization. I'm helping to promote their cause by just doing stand-up. So I do a lot of like benefits, like psychedelic benefits for places like MAPS. But uh, yeah, it's been a little, I just did a wonderful event recently for a bunch of tech bros where half the audience was on psychedelics while I was performing, which was interesting. Whoa. Yeah, what's difficult about an audience who's high or on psychedelics is sometimes like they'll laugh but sometimes they'll laugh at the wrong thing uh-huh. <laughs> you're like hi i'm sarah and they're like oh my god identity is hilarious <laughs> <laughs> you're like cool guys that's not the real show <laughs> they'll like laugh at the setup so you'll be like so i was walking to a bar the other day and they're like oh legs why do we have them that's great uh <laughs> oh my god that's hilarious 
So that's it. Usually my sets are about psychedelics, not while I'm on psychedelics. Although I have performed on psychedelics before and that's a real trip. I might want to do that again because it's, I feel like I can feel the comedic sense in the entire room. Like every single person's relationship to laughter in the moment. It's a wonderful, probably fake omniscience. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah, because you're tuning into the framework of each person's rise and fall of laughter and then their mental relationship with why they're laughing. Whoa, that's a lot at once. Oh, it is so gorgeous. Like even when you're sober, because you look out into the audience and there's an interesting thing that happens when people see a performer that you've probably experienced. People don't think about how they look. If they're really wrapped up into the performance, there's a really unguarded, vulnerable face that they give you because they're wrapped with attention, hopefully, ideally. And in that moment, one thing that's really great is like when you deliver a punchline, one thing people don't appreciate sometimes is not everybody gets it at once. So you'll see one person in the front row, let's say they get it. And and sometimes it's weird. It's like an actual wave or something where the people closest Mm. to you get it like the fastest, but like some people will get it and then you'll see it start to spread. And sometimes it spreads frankly because people are laughing and so other people start laughing and then they get it and then they really start laughing. But it's this wonderful spreading thing that happens in a microsecond. But I had to really develop that sense because I, like a lot of first time comedians, had this fear after you deliver a punchline, oh my God, what if they don't get it? And I just said something that makes no sense and they're gonna know that I'm waiting for them to laugh and they didn't laugh. But all of that happens in 0.15 seconds. And what you have to do is hold it, stay in the punchline, stay in the punchline and just have faith that they're gonna laugh. And so in that microsecond of a moment, I try to, I'm like my most observant self. And it's a high, like you have never experienced, I have never experienced. I have fainted after two different shows because I'm just firing on every neuron. (laughs) And then afterwards I need my friends to carry me off the stage. (laughs) I love comedians. You guys are a special Oh, we love you. Yeah, I have a lot of comedic friends and there's a point of view that that's common in all of you guys and there's this level of observation and you're paying attention to every little detail around you. Really special. How did you get into comedy? It was an outlet. I had always had a comedic sensibility. One of the sort of first introductions was just like my family. I had a devastatingly funny family and the currency of control in this family was who is the funniest. If you ask any comedian, who's the funniest person, I guarantee you a plurality will say a family member because instead of another comedian, because it's, you're always reaching to be funnier Uh, than your older sister and you'll never quite get there, which is why you go into comedy. And that is my older, my oldest sister is truly one of the funniest people I've ever met. And my dad is too. And I remember as a kid being mystified about how they did that. I, and I used to think it was just intelligence. Like the smarter you are, the funnier you are, which was so wrong. Like it's musical ability. It's evenly dispersed throughout. 
intelligences and classes, races, genders. And it's this mystical quality. It, part of it is innate, part of it is a craft you can hone. And I became obsessed with it. It was a language I could express myself in even when other ones didn't work, like English. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got into it in a big way. I did, I was, I did a bird call on the Letterman show when I was in high school, which was a peak experience for me. And I was like, this is, I'm totally fine being made fun of on national television. And Wait, then, what is a bird call? I was really into ornithology in high school and I won a bird calling competition and the grand prize was you got to go on the Letterman show. And so me and my friends who did this bird call together went on a Letterman show. He was like, made fun of us for being uncool ornithology <laughs> nerds. And that was it. But it was my 15 seconds of fame. <laughs> And I got all these people, by the way, writing me later about ornithology. And I really did in that moment appreciate the importance of science communicated through comedy because I didn't think anybody else would be interested in ornithology. But all of these people were like, that was so dumb what you just did. Tell me all about it. <laughs> so I got into it early and then was doing writing comedy all throughout college and then just started doing stand-up after I graduated and it was such an outlet when I was depressed. It just consumed me and took my mind off my troubles for a little while. And I just thought the people who were good at it were the coolest people ever. Who are some comedians that you love? So I think a little bit more in terms of comedy writers who turn comedian, like Norm MacDonald, I'm a big fan of his. Um, big fan of Tina Fey as a comedy writer, truly out of this world. Megan Amram, another wonderful comedy lady. There's a wonderful woman named Patty Harrison, who is the most bizarre, weirdo, awesome person in the world. I strongly recommend her Twitter. Let's see, more mainstream. I like all over the spectrum. Like Jim Gaffigan is great, especially for PG rated comedy, but that isn't down talking to anybody, really impressive. Obviously Dave Chappelle is a huge force. I hate to say it because it's not politically correct anymore, but Louis CK just so fundamentally influenced my life. And then Gary Goldman, this other comedy seller guy. And I've had the incredible honor and privilege of meeting some of these people. And and I don't recommend it because it's too intense. And it's, you know, you have a one-sided relationship where they're godlike to you. And even though they are the most friendly people in the world, it's, I can't meet my heroes. It's too hard. So what are some of your favorite comedians? Besides me, of course. Uh, let me tell you a story before I tell you. Okay. There was a moment where I met one of my heroes. I won't say his name, but just made such an impact on my career and to see a reflection of me out there doing his work on his level, I was just starstruck. And I, I don't get starstruck. I don't care about that stuff. But him, I had to leave the nail salon because just looking at him was way too bright. It was like an orb of light was shining off of him. He was there with his wife and his kid. And I could not even look his direction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like giving too much food to a starving person. Yes. You know? Too much at once. I totally get that. 
I met a hero of mine recently. I would say her name. <laughs> but we were at a party. I was trying to keep it cool. But I was trying to keep it cool by drinking a lot to show just how cool I am, which is, you know, such a great idea. Anyway, <laughs> long story short, I concluded the night by going over to my hero and telling her over and over again and promising I would die for you. Shit. <laughs> which I then kept repeating in, like she didn't hear. Anyway, but luckily she's a really good sport and she keeps texting me because we exchange numbers and she keeps texting me, would you still die for me? <laughs> I'm like, in a heartbeat. <laughs> oh my God, that's so good. <laughs> so it can't get much worse than that. <laughs> yeah, I love Steve Martin. I love Dave Chappelle, Zach Galifianakis, Michelle Wolf. It's hilarious to me. Ever since I saw her at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, that yeah, that got so much bad press, and I was like, "What? You guys can't take a joke, Jesus!" <laughs> I know. Relax. <laughs> I actually was having a debate with a friend of mine who's a wonderful comedian named Bridget Fetisi, and she was talking about her. In her opinion, female comedians can get away with less than male comedians, and I was surprised by that because I feel like. Some comedians like Sarah Silverman and Amy Schumer make their name by being body, like Joan Rivers and Chelsea Handler. It's a huge tradition. And so I was like really surprised by that. And I never have felt hemmed in by my gender when it comes to going there. And I was surprised by that. So we have an email exchange about that. Do you think that's true? Uh, I don't know about comedy because obviously I'm not a comedian, but just as a woman in general, I think that's true because anytime a woman goes to do something, she's a woman who's doing it. She's not just a funny person who talks about this, that, and the third. She's a woman who's talking about blah, blah, blah. And it's always a, a point of reference. Whereas with a man, he just is. He doesn't have to worry about being fat, being sexy, being talking about, I don't know, stepping in shit, whatever. It's never yeah. the aspect of his gender. Yeah, I think from a comedian sensibility, one of the things that you contend with is your audience's expectations of you before you say anything. And one of the things that's interesting is that's not always a bad thing. I remember a guy who was super fat, a super fat comedian, who was so fat he had three chins. He had absolutely no difference between his first chin and his neck. And he would come out onto the stage and he would say, I know what you guys are thinking. How does this guy fold a fitted sheet? And he would imitate somebody trying to use their Chin. Oh my god! Hold <laughs> 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 a finished sheet. And it was the release of the audience was intense because one of the things that with joke construction to dissect the frog a little bit, one of the things you do is you put it, you invest a lot into setting the course of your audience's expectation so that you can upend it. But if you're a person where people come in already with a lot of expectations about where you are, where you're going, it requires less work for you to upend that. 
if I get out on stage and I sometimes perform with my ukulele and I look like a Brooklyn hipster type and I come out with jokes about making fun of Brooklyn hipster types, I have to do less to prove that I am one in order to, my making fun of it, to have a better resonance in some ways. Other guys, Gary Goldman, one of my favorite comedians, is like a really big guy. He's like super jacked. And so a lot of the time, and he's, but he's a really big fan of show tunes, huge fan of show tunes. And so he'll like constantly reference like guys and dolls. And there's just something so funny about a guy so jacked talking about guys and dolls. And so I think in some ways, comedians are resourceful. You can take what you have and make it a positive essentially. Yes, yes, that's true, definitely. And on the flip side of that, there's always two sides to one coin. And so right. whatever you exactly. want to focus on as well. Right, yeah, exactly. Man, Sarah, I could talk to you for hours. I gotta go, though. I'm so bummed. I, I just checked the time. I have to pee so bad. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much for coming on. It was nice to meet you. I hope we can catch each other in person at some point. I know. I was looking at your window and I think you're slightly north of me because you're getting the fog before I am in LA. I, am I seeing the fog in the background or am I having a psychedelic hallucination? <laughs> you know what I did? I put these fogged out stickers on my window so no one can uh, see inside, but I still get oh, light. Smart lady. Okay, yeah. got it. Good to know. But yeah, I would love, let's do a thing since we're both in LA, New York transplants. You know what? I go to Santa Monica sometimes. So I'll hit you up next time I go down there with my dog. See if you Yeah, if you want to, you know, surf it up with the GoPro. I'll sit on the sand and watch you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was lovely talking to you. Thank you for having me. Yes. Yes. Enjoy your day. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.